We begin. Okay. The topic for tonight is the career of Jonathan. So Jonathan Yonatan, one of the five Hasmonean brothers, um, is the successor of Judah Maccabee. Judah dies in the Battle of Adassa in the year 160. <coughs> and Jonathan takes over. At this point in time, there are three surviving brothers. Yonatan, Shimon, and Yohanan. But very quickly, what's going to happen? We'll go down to two. Yonatan and Shimon, because Yohanan is going to die a grisly death. Um, Yonatan is a rebel guerrilla leader. Most Jews accepted as being legitimate the reign of Alcimus at Jerusalem. The high priest who was chosen by Antiochus V and was confirmed by Demetrius, who was regarded in rabbinic literature as something of a, of a no goodnik, as a bad guy. Thank you, thank you. So he's regarded in rabbinic literature as a, as a devilish character. But we learned last week that he was actually a pietist. He was a from Jew. And may have even been the author of some of the Tehillim. Of Psalm 74, Psalm 79, Psalm 82, 83. He, he is an important character in the history of the Jewish people, Alcimus. But the Hasmoneans thought he was a collaborator. View him negatively. And the first book of Maccabees, which is a Hasmonean tract, is of course going to say that he comes to an um, ignominious end. And that's when he tries to change the architecture of the temple by tearing down one of the inner walls. He has a stroke and dies. So this was a uh, you know a punishment from the Rebona Shalom in the eyes of the Maccabeans that the, the the illegitimate high priest suffers a divine punishment and drops dead. Now the Hasmoneans have to run away because Bakhiras the uh, governor of, of the uh, Trans-Euphrates province in the Seleucid Kingdom wants to kill Jonathan. And so they have to run away to the Judean wilderness, to Tekoa, which is a settlement today exists. It's in the, uh, in the southern part of the West Bank. And it's an out-of-the-way place. Even today it's an out-of-the-way place. They can't be near the center of action. They can't be near Jerusalem because you'll get caught, arrested, and killed. They send Yochanan, John, uh, together with a slow-moving baggage train across the Jordan River to their friends, the Nabataeans. Because if you're on the run, you have to travel light. You can't take a lot of suitcases with you. Now, they have much possessions because in the days of Judas, they conquered territory. They were in control of much of the land and got wealthy. They had material possessions. What are you going to do with it? When, you run, when you're on the lamb, you can't have ten suitcases. So they sent all the stuff across the river with Yochanan, and Yonatan and Shimon will hide out in the, uh, the badlands of Judea. What's the problem? A slow-moving baggage train is an easy target for people who are hostile. And the Jambrites of, of Medva, some ethnic clan uh, in the uh, <coughs> east bank of the Jordan captures this slow-moving baggage train and kills Yochanan, kills John. 
Jonathan and Simon take revenge. They, they see there's a Jambrite wedding party that's traveling on the east bank of the river, and they attack the wedding party and savagely kill a lot of people and take a lot of booty. Uh, so in those days, you killed in cold blood to avenge the death of your, your, your brother. They w- it hasn't changed much. <coughs> so, there was an inconclusive battle that happens on Shabbos at uh, the Jordan River between Jonathan and, and Bakhidas. It happens on Shabbos, and remember that Matityahu was the one who said you're allowed to fight on Shabbos. So, of course, for Yonatan, there was no doubt that you defend yourself uh, in every possible way, regardless of what day of the week it is. Even on a sacred day, you still fight your best. So, at the Jordan River, you have this inconclusive battle, but the Hasmoneans are still on the run. And so Bakhira strengthens the defenses of the Seleucid-occupied towns of Judea, and he takes Jewish hostages from all over the countryside and places them at Acre. Remember, Acre was that spot near the Temple Mount where the sinners' community was located. And the whole point of taking hostages and putting them there was that if ever <coughs> there'd be a siege or a, a battle at the Acre between Hasmonean nationalist forces and pro-Seleucid forces... By having hostages, you guarantee they're not going to burn the place down with everybody inside. That they're going to want to negotiate some kind of an arrangement. That's the uh, general idea of taking hostages. Now, Alzimus tries to tear down the wall. He dies of a stroke in the year 159. The land is, is then quiet for the next two years. From 159 to 157, we don't hear much. Nothing's going on. We'll have to explain that. But then in 157, there was a wicked plot against Jonathan to have him arrested. And Yonatan finds out. He and Shimon slip away to Beit Basi in the desert. And Bakhiras attacks Beit Basi, but Jonathan wins. They negotiate an agreement over the return of prisoners. And Bakhiras is so disgusted by his inability to defeat the Hasmoneans that he leaves the country and promises never to return. At that point in 157, 156, Yonatan dwells at Michmash, and begins judging the people. End of chapter. So, what really happened here? Well, the book of Maccabees has Yonatan crossing the Jordan River westward, like Joshua. Because remember, the first book of Maccabees is trying to depict the Hasmonean brothers, not just Judas, but all five brothers, as having been great heroes who are doing, uh, accomplishing similar feats to the great heroes of the ancient past. So remember, when we discussed Matityahu, he was like Pinchas. And he was like uh, Yoshua and Kalev. And he was like Eliyahu. There were parallels to the great heroes of antiquity. Also, Yonatan is like Joshua, a, conqueror, a conquering hero. And then he goes from the East Bank to the West Bank. The problem with that, of course, <coughs> is if he was ha- hiding out in the badlands of Judea and he's running away, which direction do you go? You go west to east. To, you're going towards Transjordan, not towards Eretz Canaan. Uh, so the book of Maccabees is uh, fudging the details a little bit here, but that, uh, that's what it does. Um, why is it that Jonathan is taking refuge in the wastelands of, the, of Yehuda, not that far away from Jerusalem and the regions where the Seleucid government is in control, rather than in the, in the more distant and isolated places like Transjordan? Why be closer to danger and to arrest when you could go further away? Can you explain that? Well, 
Well, he was explaining he wants to take over. He wants to do battle eventually. <coughs> okay, so if you so if you want to have a triumphant return, you can't go too far away, lest you be lost forever and you never come back. That's one reason. But also, the Transjordanian uh, clans, although they might have had temporary alliances with with certain Jews, they basically don't like our people, and there's never been goodwill uh, uh, from one side of the river to the other, or one side of the Arava Rift to the other. But if Jonathan is in Judea, in a remote place, at least the local population is Jewish and might support him. Not all Jews are going to support him. Some are going to be loyal to the government and to the reign of the Kohen Gadol. But at least in Judea, he'll have a chance at finding supporters. So that's why he stays in Eretz Yehuda, but on the fringes, on the margins. Okay. After the Kohen Gadol died, after Alsamus died, there was no reason for Bakhiras to remain in the country, and hence no reason for Jonathan to continue fighting, and hence a period of peace. Basically, one thing leads to another. As long as you have a, um, a, collabor- a collaborator in the office of, of Kohen Gadol, who the Chashmonaim feel is a disgrace to our people, they have a reason to harass the government and to har- harass those who are collaborating. When the guy's dead and no one is occupying the office, so the rebel faction basically you know, calms down for a while. And if the rebels aren't doing anything, then the foreign overlord has reason to just walk away and go back to his palace 100 miles uh, up the river. And in the land of, of, of Yehuda can have a moment's peace. And that moment lasted for two years. Um, where was Yonatan and the Hashmonai family during this time of relative peace? So the book of Maccabees actually doesn't tell us. And there's a reason, we suspect, why the book of Maccabees doesn't say. During the the moments of crisis, of course, the Hashmonai had to be in an out-of-the-way place, in in the Judean desert, where no one could find them. But when things are calm, where do they go? So it, it seems that there was a negotiated agreement between the government, the, the Seleucid regime, and the Chashmonaim, which basically says, as long as you don't cause any trouble, you don't uh, do any guerrilla tactics and kill people, you can go home. And where is home? Modi'in. yeah. Why doesn't the Book of Maccabees say this? Because they don't want to give the impression that one of the Hasmonean brothers, one of the five brothers, ever negotiated a deal with the evil uh, Seleucid regime. We know, of course, from last week, that th- there were occasional deals. In fact, Judas and Nicanor were on decent terms for a while. And after Judas died, there was a deal to recover the bodies from the battlefield. So sometimes you strike a, a, a deal with the, with the devil to achieve limited ends. And that's what was left out of the Book of Maccabees here, lest it not uh, reflect favorably on the, 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 the supposed heroes. Now, the anti hashmonian Jews were numerically larger than the rebel band. But they needed Bakhiris' permission to carry out an arrest raid back in 157, when the, the, the fight resumes <coughs> after the lull, because of the government's promises made to Jonathan, that as long as he didn't cause trouble, they wouldn't harm him. And now, his adversaries, among the Jewish people, are looking to see him get arrested. So, of course, he wins this battle, and his uh, adversaries are defeated. Um, and from Michmash, Yonatan is now able to control most of the countryside. Why that location? Because if you go back to the book of Shmuel Aleph, where is the location that Saul, Shaul HaMelech, begins his monarchy? At that very spot, Michmash. 
And it's also the site of a victory by an earlier Jonathan, Yonatan ben Shaul. Again, the first book of Samuel, chapter 14 or 15, where there's a, there's a Jewish victory, Israelite victory, at that site by a man named Yonatan. So it fits very well. Yonatan of the Bible, Yonatan of the Maccabees. Okay. For the next four, three, four years, Jonathan is uh, not harassed by the Seleucid government. He's not a figure of official national significance in Jerusalem. He's simply a prominent figure who formerly was a rebel leader who runs part of the countryside from one of the suburbs. That's his job for the next three, four years. But things change in 153. Not because of internal Jewish matters, but because of bigger issues in the Seleucid kingdom. In 153, Alexander Epiphanes, or better known as Alexander Ballas, um, <coughs> attacks government forces at Ptolemaeus, otherwise known as Akko, and lands there and declares himself to be the Seleucid king. Who is this Alexander Epiphanes? Well, from the name Epiphanes, you'd figure he's related to Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus of the persecution of the Ethnotica story. What's his relation to Antiochus? He claimed he was a son. He claimed he was a son of Antiochus IV. Was he really? No one knows. Yeshomrim, there are those who say there was a guy who looked like Antiochus in 158 who was leaving Rome and went on his way to, to points east. Was that the same guy as Alexander Ballas? Who knows? Uh, we weren't there, we don't have pictures, we don't have photographs, we, we, can't, we can't know with certainty. But Alexander Ballas claimed to be the son of Antiochus. Yes, so it's a family nickname. Family nickname. Yeah. Crazy one. Well, because he did things that were a little bit bizarre. So, <coughs> so would there be a conflict between Demetrius and Alex, uh, Antiochus V? Uh, um, okay, so, uh, so, so Antiochus V was defeated and killed by Demetrius back in 162. Antioch, Alexander Ballas is claiming to be Antiochus V's brother, long-lost brother, and the son of Antiochus IV, and is now challenging Demetrius I for the throne. Demetrius was in Antioch, which is the real capital of the, of the kingdom, and, and uh, Alexander Ballas comes to Ptolemaeus, which is a few hundred miles to the south. Um, what happens next? Demetrius realizes that he needs allies in the struggle for the throne. He needs any ally he can get. And so he reaches out to Jonathan, who had been a Jewish Judean rebel leader, who proved his worth on the battlefield, a guy who can win, win wars. And although they historically were at odds with each other, and you know, fought very serious battles, uh, you have to do what you have to do to, to find allies in a time of crisis. So Demetrius figures that if he didn't act fast, Jonathan was likely to make a deal with Alexander on the notion that my enemy's enemy is my friend, like uh, Anwar Sadat said about the, the Nazis with, with respect to the British. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, so he made common cause with the Nazis. So here... Alexander is an enemy of Demetrius. Demetrius was a historic enemy of the Jews. Demetrius assumes that Jonathan's going to side with Alexander. So, um, he makes a deal where Jonathan is allowed to raise troops to manufacture arms 
and to get back the hostages who were taken and placed in Accra. It's a pretty good deal. Only Beit Sur remained as a holdout for the sinners, for those who uh, rejected Hasmonean rule. Now, it's a reasonable deal. You can understand why Jonathan would take it. But then Alexander offers a sweeter deal. He says, Jonathan, you'll be a friend of the king, which is a legally significant term, a friend of the king. And you'll become the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. That's a, a major step forward for the Hashmonai family. Because as glorious as Judah Maccabee was, he won a victory, made a holiday, Hanukkah, rededicated the temple, he was not the Kohen Gadol. All through that time, Menelaus was the Kohen Gadol, like it or not. And the Tzadokite line, which was kicked out and sent packing to Egypt, the Onayid family, they're not coming back. Who's the Kohen Gadol? Somebody else. Someone chosen by the Seleucid king. Yakimish Tzrorot of rabbinic literature. Who we don't like, but maybe he was a from Jew. But he wasn't a Chashmonai, certainly not. He wasn't a nationalist. He was a collaborator. So now you have Jonathan presented with the opportunity that if he is willing to collaborate, he will become the high priest. So not even a decade after Judas is dead, you have his own brother being a collaborator for the sake of higher public office, ecclesiastical office. Is that a, a, a virtuous act on his, on his part? Is it a sellout to the family values? Who am I to say? But he took the deal. Took the deal. And so on Sukkot of 152 before the Common Era, Yonatan wears the eight priestly vestments of the Kohen Gadol and does the, the, the temple service. The family will not relinquish that office for the next 120 years until uh, Hyrcanus II has his ears cut off by Herod and uh, the family is kicked out in favor of the Bithusians. So for the next 120 years, 122 years, the Chashmonaim hold the, the high priesthood. Um, now, likely, Alexander was not of royal descent. Likely, he was a mere pretender. The first book of Maccabees doesn't say that, however. Other historical sources note the dubious nature of Alexander's claim to the throne. But why doesn't the first book of Maccabees mention that, that point of questioning his descent? What's the logic in leaving that out? Exactly. If, if the book of Maccabees, which is a pro-Hasmonean tract, were to acknowledge that the king who offered the high priesthood to the Hashmonai family was in fact Nishta king, he was a nobody from nowhere, then on what basis can the Hasmoneans claim the, 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 the office of Kren Gadol? They can't. How do you say that this guy, Alexander, <coughs> yeah. is a nobody while he's able to conquer? All right, but dynastically speaking, in, 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 the, in the values of the ancient world, if you were born a, 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 a nobody, you should have remained a nobody. Okay. The fact that in practice you conquered the world doesn't matter. What matters is that you, you were from noble or ignoble birth. Yichus counts. Yichus counts. So since the Yichus counts, we can't admit that the king that gave us the priesthood is a, really was, was of ignoble birth. Okay. That's, that's the, the, uh, the politics behind leaving things out of the book of Maccabees. Now, Jonathan's deal with Demetrius basically made him de facto leader of the nation, of the Jews. No longer just a factional rebel leader. 
But Jonathan immediately realized that he could go to Jerusalem and reinforce the temple's defensive walls. So his first act, even before, he, even before the deal with Alexander, when he first makes the deal with Demetrius, he, goes to, he runs to Jerusalem and he fortifies the temple compound, knowing that this is his first and maybe only chance to ever do that. The temple is not just the house of God, it's a last line of defense for Jewish national interests. We're going to see this time and time again over the next few hundred years of history. Um, and some of what he did still exists to this day. The eastern wall of the Temple Mount, which is also the wall effectively of the old city, uh, is still there. Uh, part of the, the lower stones, the smaller stones. Um, but Jews typically don't see that because... I mean, how many of you have, have walked around the entire old city of Jerusalem on the outside? I never have. It's dangerous to go on the far eastern side. People really don't go there. They don't see it much. Yeah. Around the whole outside? No. On the walkway is inside. I'm talking about on the outside. No, yeah. About yeah. Yeah. Oh, could be. We met. Yeah. The block down from Right. Oh, all right. Well. All the ways around the whole thing, but nobody mentioned you. anything about the eastern wall being <coughs> any whatsoever. It's pretty old. It's pretty old. So, <coughs> is that the view from Hazaisim? Yes. Okay. Yes. Hazaisim is just okay. right up. Okay. Now. Excuse me. The international. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Uh, now, Alexander, in trying to lure Jonathan away from his deal with Demetrius and make his own deal with Jonathan, offers all sorts of fancy and flattering titles to Yonatan. Friend of the king, high priest, soon we'll see he's a kinsman of the king, later on when he fights some wars on behalf of Alexander. So they're competing for the loyalties of the former Jewish rebel. And it looks like Alexander has won in that battle for Jonathan's loyalty. But Demetrius doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. He tries to offer Jonathan an even sweeter deal to remain loyal to him. Many, many concessions uh, are offered. And I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry I didn't bring my book of Maccabees with me. I, I wanted to read the whole laundry list of concessions that he was going to give. But it was about exemption from taxation, the ending of the, of, of the, uh, the existence of the Acre and the community of sinners on the Temple Mount, rebuilding or rather uh, refurbishing the temple itself, issues of surplus money that had always been a, a, a machloikis over who gets the surplus money when the temple doesn't uh, spend all that which the king allotted to it. Does, does the temple get to keep it or does it go back to the king? We saw it 20 years earlier, they, they fought a war over that. So on all these issues, Demetrius is willing to give in to concede to the Jews whatever they want. He's that desperate for an ally in this uh, war over the throne. How many people did Jonathan have? He could muster 10,000 people if he really wanted to. How many did Alexander or Demetrius have? That I don't know, uh, because that kind of information doesn't appear in the Jewish sources. You'd have to... You know, look up Wikipedia articles about battles between uh, uh, Alexander Ballas and Demetrius to know what kind of strength of forces they had. But Jonathan could easily uh, muster 3,000 people and sometimes even 10,000 people. And that's, that's not a small number. That's a real number. Um, okay. D- Jonathan and the people don't believe this offer. They think it's too good to be true. It's got to be a bluff. 
or even if it's not a bluff, even if it's meant seriously in the moment, if it ever came down to it, the guy wouldn't uh, comply with, with the concessions that he made on paper. So they reject it, and they stay loyal to Alexander Ballas. Um, Alexander defeats Demetrius in battle, and then he marries Ptolemy VI's daughter Cleopatra at Ptolemaeus. Jonathan was invited and is given to, uh, the opportunity to wear the color purple, which indicates that he's of royal standing, that he's recognized as something of a, of a client king uh, in this region. And those who arrive at Ptolemaeus to, uh, to be malchian, to say negative things about Jonathan, are silenced and ignored. Meaning that not all Jews or residents of the Judean area are so enamored with Jonathan. Historically, the Hasmoneans had many enemies, even internal enemies, and some of them showed up at this party, the, the, the marriage of Cleopatra with Alexander Ballas, and wanted to say nasty things about Jonathan to Ptolemy, and he wasn't, he wasn't interested in listening. Jonathan is now an accepted ally of this um, merger of the, the Ptolemaic Egypt and the Seleucid Syria through the union of Cleopatra and Alexander Ballas. It's all one big happy family now, with Jonathan being an ally of both, of, of both sides. Wonderful, wonderful. Mazel tov. But, what's really going on here? So, Demetrius, if we look at his second offer, when he offers you know, the kitchen sink, every concession possible, but money and all else, he pretended like the Jews hadn't moved in the direction of Alexander. Meaning, the, the sequence of events was a, a deal between Jonathan and Demetrius, reneging on that, and the deal between Jonathan and Alexander, then another attempt by Demetrius to get Jonathan back. So, in Demetrius' second attempt, he pretends as though there never was any wavering on the part of the Jews, that, that there was no doubt they'd be on his team. He's assuming the conclusion, and ignoring that there was an arrangement with Alexander Ballas. If you read it, it reminds me of Baghdad Bob. Remember Baghdad Bob? Who, 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 Saddam Hussein's uh, press secretary who said that the, 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 the Western powers are nowhere in sight. Meanwhile, on CNN, you see in the background that the, the Tomahawk missiles are coming down on his, on his house. Um, it's, 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 it's completely false. But that was the style of the time. The, in Greek rhetoric, in Greek letters, you, you never admitted that there was a problem politically. You always assumed that everything was, was, was fine. Um, <coughs> Demetrius also was able to write this something, and possibly in good faith because he did not recognize Jonathan as high priest remember it was Alexander who appointed Jonathan as high priest and maybe the traditional organs of Jewish statehood had never sided with Alexander it's a very key point we keep talking about Jonathan made a deal with them Jonathan made a deal with him Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan who is Jonathan? Until he's appointed high priest by Alexander, he doesn't hold any official office. Who are the real leaders of the Jews? Well, you could call it the Sanhedrin, you could call it the Jerusalem, the, the organs of state that are, that are housed in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. The, um, the oligarchy of the Jerusalem prominent families, they are the ones who really uh, are the, the, the Senate of the Jews, who can make treaties and conduct public you know, diplomacy on behalf of the nation of the Jews not some rebel leader who's about to be appointed high priest. So since Demetrius doesn't recognize Jonathan's standing, he only recognizes the official levers of government, he could legitimately say that they, they never sided with Alexander. They were always loyal to him, uh, up until that point. 
Yeah. <coughs> right. Uh, there's a chance that he may not make it out of his own state. Right. Did that ever happen to any of these crumbs? Okay, so according to the Talmudic tradition, it did happen once. Only once? Alright, so according to another passage in the Talmud, it says that there were 300 high priests in the Second Temple era. By contrast, there were only like a dozen or, a dozen or so in the First Temple era. And why the, the vast difference between the First and the Second Temple? Because they were, they were corrupt and, 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 and um, uh, sectarian, and they didn't, uh, lo, uh, uh, they didn't live out the year. But they didn't live, didn't live out the year is very different from dying in the Holy of Holies and being pulled out by a rope. And even the business of dying in the Holy of Holies and being pulled out by a rope, the one story, there are two recensions of it. One version says that an, a, a Malach kicked him in the back and killed him. A, another version says that he came out alive and told his father, Hey, Daddy, you know, I did the service the way the Tzedukim said so, not the way the Prushim say so. And the father says, Oh, my God, my son, you shouldn't have done this because even though we think we're right, we always do it their way so we don't die, I, I, you're going to drop dead soon. And he did, and then uh, the, the, the worms were coming out of his nose. Uh, the maggots were eating them. So, uh, yes, there are stories, but only one story about one guy that he died inside. And not even, even that's legendary. He could have had a stroke. Could have had a, yeah, well, like, like Alzheimer's had a stroke, yeah. <coughs> okay, so, now, Demetrius... Why did Demetrius it, connect with the oligarch? He's trying. So, so listen, that's the very point I'm about to make. Demetrius was not only trying to desperately win over the Jews... He was also trying to galvanize the old uh, Alcimist crowd, the old uh, um, Hellenistic Jewish crowd, away from Jonathan's growing ranks, meaning try to split the Jewish vote. That yes, the Hashmonaim seem to be on the rise, again on the ascendancy, but there are still plenty of Jews who never liked them, whether they're really from ones who were non-nationalists, the Naturi Karta crowd, or the, the really reform ones who were in favor of Menelaus. So all those groups still have, um, you know, a constituency that, that are available for the taking politically. And that's what Demetrius is hoping for. So Demetrius offered to impose the rule of Torah on all Jews, including Jews in his army. So he's offering uh, basically to satisfy the needs of the frum, of the religious, on condition what? That you, you forget about the Yonatan, uh, the uber-nationalists, and forget about supporting Alexander Ballas. Remain loyal to me as you have for the past decade. And I'll let you learn, keep Torah. I'll even let you keep Torah in my military. The supporters of, uh, the pious supporters of Alcimus a decade earlier had fallen for this very uh, proposal. They agreed to stop fighting because... The Seleucid king said, you can now live according to the Torah. And if, if all you care about is living according to the Torah and not uh, securing Jewish independence, then fine, stop right here. Take the deal. Okay. Demetrius also promised that three southern districts of Samaria would be attached legally to Judea. These were probably uh, solidly Jewish, demographically speaking, and may o- have already been controlled by Judas in the 160s. These areas included Lod, Ramataim, and Ephraim. So the, the, the southern regions of Samaria, which are today basically like a line extending from the airport across through Ramallah and towards the river. You know, areas that are 5, 10, 12 miles north of Jerusalem, straight line across. This is a very tempting proposal because 
Remember that the Judean province, since the beginning of the Second Temple period, was very, very small. And that province was under the domain of the high priest. But Jews lived well beyond those borders. And in fact, if you remember from last week, after um, uh, the Maccabean victories, Judas had to go and rescue those people, those Jews who lived beyond the border, but in Eretz Israel, because they were in danger of being attacked by the Goyim. So to expand the borders of Judea was a very positive development. It would mean that more Jews and more territory comes under, not Jewish uh, independence, but Jewish control. Okay. There's possible evidence from the offer made by Demetrius that um, around this time, the notion of Machatzit HaShekel came into existence. Why do I say that? In earlier lectures, we mentioned that the the foreign kings paid for the temple cult. Whether it was the Persian monarchs of the early Second Temple period or the Macedonians from Alexander on down. Whoever controlled Eretz Yisrael paid for the korbanot, paid for the sacrifices. Okay, the last time that deal was struck was when Antiochus III conquered Eretz Yisrael in 198 and the deal was made, whereby there's exemption from taxes for certain ecclesiastical figures, and he pays for the korbanot. According to the halacha, who pays for the korbanot? So the machasir shekels, which is imposed upon the Jews 20 and above, or even uh, people younger than that, if they want to donate voluntarily. And according to the Pharisaic halacha, a private individual could not sponsor a day's uh, korban tamid. You know, you have... uh, in the modern Jewish experience, you have each day someone could pay for the Kiddush. Someone could pay for uh, the Day of Learning. Today's day learning is sponsored by so-and-so. When it comes to the Korban Tamid, the Tzedokim thought that you could do that. You could have a private individual sponsor a day's sacrifice. The Prushim said, absolutely not. It must come from the B'nai Yisrael as a collective, which means everybody's got to give a token amount. And based upon certain passages in the Bible, including uh, the beginning of Parshat Kitisa and the section in Parshat Pinchas, there is uh, some basis to suggest that Machatzir uh, Shekel's Torah law, except that it's a Torah law that it's invented at a specific time in history. It doesn't go back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Very clearly not. And in the days of, of Nehemiah, how much did people pay? Not a half a shekel, but a third of a shekel. We read that very clearly in the book of Nehemiah. A third of a shekel, not a half a shekel. So uh, how do I know, or how can I, why do I have some conjecture here that the notion of Machatzir shekel begins now, or sometime between 198 in the days of Antiochus III and 150, roughly speaking, in the days of the, 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 the fight between Alexander Ballas and Demetrius? Because when Demetrius offers to make his big concessions, he offers 15,000 uh, shekels to the, to the temple, for unspecified use, he does not offer to pay for korbanot. Which might lead you to believe that along the way, they determined, the Jews, the religious authorities of the Jews determined, that the heathen king cannot pay for korbanot. That must come from Jewish donations. And as for what the king gives us, we'll put it to the general fund, to the, to the rebuilding fund, to the Kiddush fund, who knows what, but not for the korbanot. That's what most of the scholars think they can, they can derive from this. Yeah. That, that, that when, when the king went and, and 
pillage and pilfered all the money, yeah. people got upset. Yeah. So it seems like people were giving money to the Bessemer. No. But Amigdash had money, and yes, people were giving money, but as donations. You can always give a private donation to the Bessemer. What, you, can give a, you can give a gold menorah if you want. You can give a spoon, a fork, a knife. You can do whatever. You can give anything. And if the temple has a need for it, they'll use it. If they don't have a need for it, they'll melt it down and, and, and use the, the precious metals or sell it and take the money and put it in the coffers. That, 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 ha- that could happen anytime to the end of the temple period. But as for the Korbanot proper, as far as we know, they were paid for by the outside king through Antiochus III, through Seleucus IV, up until the Hanukkah story. After that, what happened? My guess is, an impetus for the change was that when the, 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 uh, the sacrificial cult, as required by the Torah, was suspended in favor of a Avodah-Zorah-type situation, a lot of the, um, the traditions about how the temple functioned changed forever. And they no longer trusted an outside monarch with the Korban Tamid. It's too precious to us to leave in the hands of some goy. So therefore, let the Jews pay for it. That's, that's what I'm speculating. But that's just an element of my, that's, that, that's my little uh, kernel of speculation. The scholars believe, on the basis of Demetrius' uh, offer, that uh, at some point in this gener- generation, the, the, the notion of Jewish payment came into, in, into vogue. Okay. Uh, there are numismatic experts uh, who um, who address this issue, but when I was reading the various technical footnotes, I got lost because I, I'm not a math person and I'm not a coin person, so I, I couldn't tell you exactly how many grams of uh, of, of of barley uh, uh, correspond to the shekel. All right. Josephus have a whole section on. He does. On all these conversions. He, yes, on, on, on converting the, the biblical uh, denominations were the ones that were prevalent in, in, in first century Judea. Okay, so Demetrius loses in midsummer of 150. He reigned for 12 years. And with Alexander's victory, and Jonathan's loyalty to Alexander, Jonathan was officially made military and civil governor of Judea. So now he's not only the Kohen Gadol, he has a religious uh, office, he also has a military office and a political office. What year? 150. That's a pretty powerful guy. He's consolidating various types of political capital in one man, which will eventually lead within the next uh, decade or so to a Hasmonean dynasty that is a monarchy and also an ecclesiastical dynasty, which is much uh, to the chagrin of the rabbis, or the proto-rabbis, the Pharisees at a later time. But one man is going to hold a lot of office. Jonathan was a very cautious fellow, and he never... Uh, made rash judgments about God's will for Israel. In the sense that in the 160s, during Judas's time, the Hanukkah story, people were thinking this is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. They were looking to the book of Daniel and the, the, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. All sorts of prophecies that are in and out of our Bible 
we're looked to, is, are they being fulfilled? Is he the hero? Is he the Messiah? That was in the days of Judas. Jonathan doesn't think along those lines. Much more level-headed. Realpolitik. Try to win. Try to side with the right team. Do what makes the most sense in the moment. Don't try to be a hero and fulfill prophecies. But, a few years down the road, which we'll get to in next week's lecture, he does make one blunder that costs him when he thinks he's a, he is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2. So we'll have to wait for that. But Demetrius 2 emerges as a contender to the throne in 147. So Demetrius 1 is dead. But in good Seleucid fashion, once you think you got the names down, you don't have the names down. There's always going to be another guy with the same name, but he had a number. Okay? So Demetrius 1 is dead, Demetrius 2 is on the scene. He's a son of Demetrius 1. And he's going to contest Alexander Ballas' uh, reign in 147. He appoints Apollonius as governor of Syria. And Apollonius sends a threatening message to Jonathan that they should fight head-to-head in the coastal plain. So remember, Alexander and Jonathan are buddy-buddy. They killed Demetrius. Demetrius too, the son, wants, is out for revenge. It's like a sequel to a movie. And Apollonius is a Philistine who happens to be working for Demetrius too, and says to Jonathan, in good Philistine fashion, always challenging the Jews, the Israelites, we want to do battle, man, man to man. Not guerrilla tactics in the mountains, where you could hide behind the, 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 the clefts and the rocks and the, the pebbles, and you'll have little hiding places for ambush. No. Out in the open field. Uh, so, like Goliath, exactly. So there are biblical parallels here. That Goliath stood in the open field and challenged and cursed the God of Israel and said, who's going to take me on? You're all a bunch of wimps. You're afraid to do it. So Apollonius is doing that to Jonathan. You're a wimp. You're afraid. If you really were, were a tough guy, you'd come out and fight against me in the coastal plain. All right, so what does Jonathan do? He goes to Yafo, where the people don't want to let him in because they're loyal to, to Demetrius too. And Jonathan has to attack, and he occupies the city temporarily, but then he moves on, and the battle takes place near Azotas, in the coastal area. The Jews win, despite being ambushed and seemingly surrounded. Of course, that's one Maccabees glorifying a, 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 like a, like a fourth-quarter comeback uh, by, by Jonathan. We don't know exactly what happened in, in the battle, but the good first book of Maccabees, which always wants to play up the, the uh, heroism of, of the family, says that he, it looked like all was lost. And then he pulled out a, a victory with a two-minute drive at the buzzer. What happened? So Shimon and Yonatan lead the army and pursue the fleeing enemy soldiers who run for safety at Beit Dagon. Where is Beit Dagon? In Gaza somewhere, in the, the southern part of the, the coastal uh, area. In the, in the book of Shmuel, what happened at Beit Dagon? Samson brought the... Uh, Samson brought the... No, what, what else happened at Beit Dagon? The idol fell down in the presence of the Aron, the Ark of the Jews. So, uh, and its arms fell off. The, the, the deity of Dagon was nothing in comparison to the, the God of the Jews. So what happens? They run to Beit Dagon for like an asylum, as though that's going to save them. And what does what do Yonatan and Shimon do? They burn the house down with the people inside. They destroy the place of idolatry. Um, 
Ashkelon surrenders to the Jews, and so they don't get killed. Alexander Ballas, grateful to Yonatan for having defeated Apollonius and uh, really damaged Demetrius II's interests in, in this struggle for the throne, awards the city of Ekron to Jonathan as a reward for his victory. So it's a personal property now, uh, an appreciation for his uh, heroic... Uh, Where is Ekron? Ekron is one, was one of the five Philistine cities. It's uh, the northeasternmost of the Philistine cities. So it was populated not by Jews, but <coughs> not by Jews, but by heathens. Yes, it's close. It's not far from, ya, you know, ya, uh, uh, Yavna, the Jamnia. It's it's not far from the the southwestern reaches of the Judean province. So, what really happened here? Demetrius too was only a teenager when he pressed his claims for the throne. Alexander Ballas was inept and lazy. And so Demetrius realistically thought that he could win if he tried hard enough. And he was sent by his father as a child to the Greek islands. That was the policy of certain Seleucid kings. Don't live with your family. Send your children to safety beyond the borders in the, in the European Greek realm. So he sent them to one of the Greek islands with a bucket full of money, full of gold. And with that gold, Demetrius in his teenage years was able to hire Cretan mercenaries to fight on his behalf to try to recover the Seleucid uh, kingdom. Alexander typically avoided Antioch, which was the capital city. He was always on vacation, and he stayed at his base in Ptolemais in Akko. So Demetrius was able to try to get to Antioch, and Alexander has to race back before it's too late. So they're, they're fighting for who can control the key, uh, the key cities, the key uh, government buildings um, in, the, in the battle for who, who is going to have the throne. Now, in receiving Ekron, Jonathan is now like King David. Remember, the book of Maccabees is always trying to portray the Hasmonean brothers like the heroes of the Bible. When did, uh, so Jonathan gets a city along the, the Philistine coastline to be his property. What did David get? Tziklag. Tziklag was a, a Philistine encampment that was given to King David in return for his services in attacking the Amaleki in the Negev. In, in the period before David was king of Hebron, so David was a hired goon for the Philistines uh, in a, for a brief period early in his career. So is there these parallels? <coughs> yeah. Is it true? Yes, absolutely true. Historically? Yes, true. yes, it's, it's, it's true. But uh, there the way they are, they are phrased in such a way to evoke memories of the biblical past. Because he won battles against Demetrius II's uh, soldiers, Alexander Ballas refers to Jonathan now as a kinsman of the king, a, a relation, a relative almost, a title that was even higher than friend of the king. So the more he does, the more Jonathan does, the higher up the rank he goes. He's really getting very high. But now the last piece for tonight. In the summer of 145, Ptolemy VI, who was the father-in-law of, of Alexander Ballas, remember Alexander married Cleopatra at a big chasna, and Yonatan was there. Okay, so in the summer of 145, Ptolemy VI comes marching up the coast from Egypt towards Antioch. Ostensibly, he's there to support his son-in-law Alexander in Alexander's battle for the throne against Demetrius. So, 
no one is suspicious that the Egyptian king is coming with a fairly substantial army up the coast into regions that are really part of the Seleucid domain because uh, it's, it's all in the family, all mishpacha. But you could see something is not right here. Okay. He leaves garrisons of troops behind everywhere he goes, which means he's basically occupying the country in his own name, not as the father-in-law of the king. Then... Jonathan meets him at Yafo, and, and uh, Ptolemy treats Jonathan as an ally, because after all, at this point, uh, Ptolemy is still the father-in-law of Alexander, and Jonathan is the most loyal ally of Alexander. But then, suddenly, like right out of the WWF, where the guy changes teams in the middle of a match, uh, Ptolemy makes a deal with Demetrius to make him the king of the Seleucid realm, and to make him the son-in-law. Who's him? Him, meaning Demetrius. That Cleopatra, the wife of Alexander, is going to be taken out of the, the marital bed and given to Demetrius. Without a get. Nothing. No divorce. Nothing. It's just, uh, this is my daughter. I can decide who she's married to. So instead of being married to Alexander Ballas, she's now married to Demetrius, and Demetrius is king. And he's a teenager? He's a teenager, yeah. What a way Okay, all right, so <laughs> it's good to be the king, yeah. Now, uh, Alexander, at this point, understands that Ptolemy is his enemy, and he does battle and loses. Alexander runs away to Arabia, where he thinks he can find refuge and asylum, but no, his head is chopped off by some Arab. Now, some Arab, <laughs> usual. Now, Ptolemy, however, was personally injured in that war and dies of his wounds several days later as the physicians try to uh, heal his fractured skull. But according to some accounts, he lived long enough to see the severed head of his former son-in-law, Alexander. So he knew he won, but he, but he died. And having died... He won the battle and lost Yeah, but having died, now Demetrius... The second wins, and he is the king. He's the king of the Seleucid realm. And he has Cleopatra. And he has Cleopatra. So he, he comes out ahead. So how does that affect Jonathan? Okay, exactly. Why does the book of Maccabees address all this foreign intrigue when it seems to have little to do with the Jews? But we'll see that it does. Okay. So first of all, why did Ptolemy do this? That's, the, that's a big question. And the scholars are unsure. They offer three theories and depends upon which is your primary source. If the book of Maccabees is the primary source, you go one way. If the, if the Oneid Chronicles is your primary source, which is what Josephus relied upon, you go another way. Three theories. Number one, Egyptian monarchs in general had long wanted to take over Syria. Remember, Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. When he died... For reasons of, ne- of necessity, his vast realm was divided in three parts. The Asian realm, the Seleucid uh, dynasty. <coughs> the Egyptian North African realm was the Ptolemies. And then there's the Greek section, the Macedonia, Greek islands, um, Asia Minor, that uh, went to, to Philip. So these successors to Alexander fought terribly bloody, bloody battles for a good generation before the status quo emerged. Everybody wanted to be the the absolute monarch of the world. 
except for you know a good 150 years, it was impossible to pull to pull off. Nobody could do it. The best they could hope for was marry off their child to a competing king and then have uh, a large empire by dint of uh, family relations. But nobody had really conquered uh, the broader territory. But they wanted to. So for a king of Egypt to easily march into the Seleucid-controlled domain under the cover of being a relative, he could conquer the world. So that's one theory. Second theory is that... Alexander uh, threatened to assassinate Ptolemy as he was uh, marching beyond his own borders and exposed with a limited army. You know, when when you're outside of your own country and you just have a detachment of security guards or a small force, you could be killed. And it's not that difficult to assassinate somebody under those circumstances. It's not like he's on his throne in his own country, in his own capital. So the Book of Maccabees says that there was a, a, a plot, there was a supposedly a plot by Alexander to kill his father in Ptolemy. But according to Maccabees, it was false. It wasn't really true. Because Book of Maccabees likes Alexander Ballas because Alexander Ballas gave the Jews, the, high, the Heismanians, the high priesthood. So they claim that it was, there was no conspiracy to, to assassinate Ptolemy. It was made up. And that's the third theory, that the, the conspiracy was just a pretext to justify Ptolemy's change of son-in-law. That Ptolemy realizes what? Alexander is a bum, he's lazy, he's inept, he can't rule, I bet on the wrong horse four years ago, and now I'm going to change teams. I'm going to go with Demetrius. But I need an excuse to change teams, and what's my excuse? My son-in-law tried to kill me. So now I have a legitimate reason to sever ties with him and go with the other, the other contender. There's a fourth. You say Alexander wanted the Egypt. No, but, well, yeah, but he, he didn't do anything about that. Uh, he was not in a position to attack Egypt. It was Ptolemy who came into the Seleucid realm, not the opposite. Okay, so how does any of this affect the Jews? Very simply. Jonathan as a loyal ally, the most loyal ally of Alexander Ballas, thought he was doing you know, the right thing. He was an honest man in, 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 in the interna- on the international scene. He, he played by the, by the rules. He played fair. But playing fair, what does that get you? His patron is now dead. And what's he going to do next? That's the big question. So, of course, he'll have to change sides. He'll have to find some sort of accommodation with Demetrius II in the hopes of preserving what he has already gained for himself and for the Jews generally. For himself, it was the office of, the, of Kohen Gadol, the office of civilian governor and military governor of Judean province, and for the Jews generally, the concessions when it came to taxation, the additional areas that were uh, attached to uh, the Judean province, and the respect that had been given to the Jews for their good service to the, to the empire. Well, if the relations are sour with the next king, all that could be lost. So Jonathan will have to be a very savvy diplomat to switch sides at a moment's notice. Again, can he pull it off? And the answer is yes. So next week, we'll address the last days of Jonathan's career, which ends tragically with him being killed 
because he was duped. Spoiler. So it's a, it's a spoiler, but, but I'm not going to give away the real end of the story, which has to do with Shimon, because Shimon becomes the last of the surviving brothers. What does he do? Does he succeed in areas where even Jonathan was unable to succeed? So stay tuned next week. <laughs>